Let's all pray together. Lord, it is good to be in your house, to praise you, to worship with each other. And we're so grateful that you have given this to us, this gift of worship, Lord. I pray that this morning as we meditate on what it means to be content, that you would give us an all-consuming desire to be content in you alone. I pray that this passage would speak to us with power and with conviction and that we would leave here transformed by your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Chipper, and um, I just moved actually one week ago with my wife Kristen to Florida, to Gainesville, Florida, to launch a church that EBF is supporting there. And we moved down there with uh, Steve and Tesh Yu, who are going to be a part of the launch team. They used to be EBF members. And also Ryan and Katie Harding, who actually left several months ago to move to Gainesville. And then in a couple of months, uh, Marion and Esther Frakowitz, Lord willing, will be joining us there in Gainesville, Florida. And some people have asked me to give an update, you know, after one week. What's it like? How's it going? Um, Let me tell you, church planning is very glamorous. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the last week and a half, we packed boxes. Uh, We packed those boxes into a truck, and then we drove the truck, and then we unpacked the boxes, and then we painted our whole house, and um, Lord willing, we'll actually put those unpacked boxes in places this week. And then, actually, as a bonus, last week we ate Honey Nut Cheerios out of Solo Cups for our dinner. So if you think that church planning sounds really edgy and cool, um, that's just a taste of what's in store if you decide to join us at some point in Gainesville, Florida. Um, We moved down with the U's. Praise God, we each, the U's and us, we have awesome places to live. I do have something to say, though, to college students, um, and particularly college males. We got to our house, and our house was previously... um, College males used to live in our house, and um, I, mean, I was trying to think of some sort of imagery to describe what our house looks like uh, prior to us painting the whole house this week. Maybe if you could think of six or seven guys riding around on tricycles, eating like these plates of spaghetti, okay, and then every so once in a while they crashed full speed into the walls. That's basically what our house looked like when we got there. I realize I'm indicting myself here partly because I used to be a male college student, but, um, and I used to live in a house, and I don't think we took great care of it, honestly, but we need to raise our game, uh, male college students, frankly. On a more serious note, though, I did tell you about two weeks ago that we were, you know, praying for jobs for everyone on the launch team, and I, I announced that uh, two people had gotten jobs, Tesh you had a job, and then also my wife Kristen, her job transferred to Gainesville, which was huge. Praise God for that. So they had jobs. And we found out this past week that uh, Steve Yu also got a job, and he will be teaching in Gainesville for us. So what that means is that everyone so far that's moved to Gainesville uh, to be a part of the launch team has a job. So we've got 100% jobs, which is amazing. And we've only been there for a week. So praise God for that. And thank you for praying for that. 
very much. Um, as far as prayer requests, uh, I'd say probably the most important thing right now is that you'd be praying that we would cope well with the stress that we're going through. Just as an example, uh, Tesh, you only found out a week and a half ago that she was going to be teaching um, in Gainesville, Florida. This past Monday um, was her first day, and this coming Monday is when the kids show up for her second grade class. So on Monday, she got into her classroom. It was in a lot of disrepair. She has to kind of shore up the whole place. On Friday, she flew out to Colorado to be in a wedding. And on Sunday night, she flies back because it's a Sunday wedding. And on Monday, all the kids arrive in her second grade class. So, I mean, that's a lot of stuff to be dealing with. And that's kind of the norm for lots of us right now. So, prayer for that. Also, prayer for getting to know the people uh, that are that are in the church with us, that we're going to be a part of in the interim time before we launch the church. We're going to be attending another church before we launch um, the new church. Just pray that we would build great relationships with these people. Um, we're kind of in a grieving process, frankly, for leaving EVF. We love everyone here. Um, it's tough to leave. So uh, just be praying for that. And also be praying that we would meet our neighbors quickly and build relationships with them and get a foothold um, in the communities in Gainesville, Florida. Um, that's kind of our chief task right now, is that we just get to know people and love on them some. Um, so we appreciate your prayers in that. The message this morning is from Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20, although I'm going to be focusing mostly on verses 10 through 13. And you'll see that this text has a lot to do with this idea of contentment. I want to talk about why did I choose this text, because... At EBF, you may be aware, generally speaking, we preach uh, consecutively through books of the Bible. So we start at the beginning of Matthew, we preach verse by verse and go all the way to the end. The last two weeks, Jason has been preaching, uh, has not been doing that. He's been preaching on our ethos statements, uh, humble orthodoxy two weeks ago, and then uh, this past week, um, abiding worship. And then this week, I'm also not uh, continuing a series. I'm doing sort of an isolated message in some ways. So I want to explain why we're going to talk about this idea of contentment. And I want to mention three reasons. First of all, contentment actually has a lot to do with how we can be abiding worshipers. We'll talk about that more. Um, And like we said, Jason talked about that last Sunday. Secondly, there's a lot of talk today in Christian circles about so-called doing radical things, about doing huge things for Jesus. Um, And by radical, in this context, we're not meaning the Inquisition or the Crusades, not that kind of radical. By radical, what is meant is this this kind of wholehearted, sacrificial um, obedience to Christ that glorifies him alone. So there's a lot of speakers, a lot of authors urging this kind of radical commitment to Christ. David Platt is a relatively famous one. He wrote the book Radical and then followed that up with Radical Together. Um... And then you also had Francis Chan about four or five months ago at the Passion Conference where there's, there's like over 40,000 college students gathered urging that, that group of 40,000 students to say, hey, if we all work together, there's 40,000 people in this room, maybe we could actually end human trafficking. Now, I don't, you know, I don't know how you feel about that statement, or about David Platt and the books that he's writing. But the reality is a lot of people are saying, hey, it feels like we've been coasting a little bit. We want to do something huge for Jesus. We want to, we want to break out of this sort of 
apathetic U.S. Christianity. That's been the call from many people. And then a third reason I want to talk about this idea of contentment is that it seems like people are more desperate than ever to find contentment, and this desperation is increasing. And I I was trying to say, how can I kind of prove that argument that I'm making? Well, I did a search in the New York Times archives for occurrences of both the words content and contentment um, when they occur in the same article. And I searched by decade to see how many hits, how many articles would come up with these words in them, okay? In the 1950s, there were four articles with these terms. In the 1960s, there were four articles. In the 1970s, there were three articles. In the 1980s, there were eight articles. In the 1990s, there were six articles. From 2000 to 2009, there were 1,570 articles. 2010 to the present, so we're a quarter of the way to this next decade, there's already 1,560 articles in the New York Times that have hits for contentment. People are looking for this. They want to know, how do we get this contentment? How do we find this thing? And it seems that some people seem to have it, but then other people don't have it. Other people aren't content. And what do all of these reasons for preaching this text this morning have in common? Well, we'll see that they actually all have to do with living godly, fruitful lives. They all have to do with living godly, fruitful lives. So the the biblical argument I want to unpack this morning is this, that godly contentment leads to godly living. Godly contentment leads to godly living. And we're going to unpack that argument by making three observations about the text. But before we make those observations, we've actually got to talk a lot about the the context of the book of Philippians. I'm going to kind of give you the need-to-know highlights about Philippians since we're just kind of jumping into this book. The book of Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, if you recall, um, used to persecute Christians and was miraculously converted to Christianity and became, I think everyone would say this, the most famous church planner of all time. That was the Apostle Paul. And then the Philippians are this group of people, they're, they're this church in Philippi that Paul had actually previously started. So we talked about him being a church planner. Paul helped start the church at Philippi, and, and it was probably his first church plant, actually. Very important to understand that when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was actually in jail. And you don't have to look far to find that. If you read Philippians chapter 1, which we're not going to do today, but if you read Philippians 1, you'll see very clearly that Paul was in jail when he was writing this letter to the Philippians. And the immediate reason he wrote the letter was because he had just received some, some gifts from them, some support, and so he was writing back to them to thank them for that support. He also took the opportunity to encourage this church and offer them some exhortations because this church was actually being kind of pretty faithful to what Paul had preached to them and the foundations that he had previously laid. And that's not something to be taken for granted because lots of churches that Paul planted were not doing that. If you want an example of a, a negative example, read Galatians. 
and see what Paul has to say there. So Philippians chapter 4, the chapter that we're going to focus on today, um, is actually the closing chapter of this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. In verses 1 through 9, which come right before the text we're going to talk about, Paul encourages the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And it's not actually just an encouragement. It's really, it's a commandment to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, to avoid anxiety and any other kind of impure thoughts. And to live obediently um, in correspondence to the truth that they've received. So that's what Paul has just been talking about in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And now we move to verses 10 through 20, which is our text for this morning. So... Let's go ahead and stand and read this text together. Starting in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. And by the way, um, this is out of order. If you would like a Bible, I, I should have done this earlier. The ushers might not be prepared for this at all. Maybe just stick your hand up a little bit and they'll give you a Bible. We want to make sure you have one if you'd like to follow along with us this morning. Before we make our three observations and we unpack this argument that that godly contentment leads to godly living, we need to go ahead and define a term here. We're going to be using this, this term content time and time again this morning. I don't want to just throw it around without uh, first explaining a little bit about what Paul means when he uses this term contempt. When Paul says content, when he uses that term, he's making a reference to having this fullness and satisfaction in God because of the gospel. And this fullness and satisfaction in God because of the gospel. And we'll unpack that more later. I want you to know that straight away. So let's make our first observation about this text, which has to do with what contentment looks like. What contentment looks like or the attitude of a content person, the attitude of a content person. This observation is super helpful because it helps us understand why godly contentment is such a wonderful thing, and it also helps us identify people who are genuinely content. 
So what does contentment look like? Well, content people rejoice. Content people rejoice. We see this in verse 10 and in other verses in Philippians. But if you look at verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you had revived your concern for me. This is a staggering statement. It's a staggering statement. We'll talk about this in more detail again later, but recall that Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison when he writes this. So put this all together. Paul in prison, rejoicing. Paul in prison, rejoicing. Staggering statement. So for Paul, you cannot say, uh, he's rejoicing because he has an easy life. He's just kind of coasting. Not true for Paul. Not true for Paul. But it's also important to keep in mind the meaning of the verb, I rejoiced. What is Paul really saying when he says, I rejoiced? When Paul says that, he rejoices in something, or when he encourages others in the book of Philippians to rejoice or commands them to rejoice, he's saying that he delights in God's grace or he is glad because of it. He delights in God's grace or is glad because of God's grace. He is not saying, therefore, he is not saying that he's slapping a smile on his face or he's being phony. This is not the same kind of rejoicing that you would associate with, you know, a five-year-old going to Walt Disney World. This is a very different kind of rejoicing that Paul is talking about. The kind of rejoicing that Paul is talking about transcends the immediate circumstances. It transcends the immediate circumstances. So Paul understands that no matter what happens in an earthly sense, he is a child of God, a sinner saved by grace through faith. Because of this, Paul can rejoice. The reason we find this hard to believe, that Paul can be rejoicing in this sense, while he's in jail, I think, is because we have often a low view of our own salvation. We ourselves don't recognize just how amazing and spectacular our salvation is. If we have this kind of, you know, ho-hum view of Jesus, we're always going to be skeptical of people who are rejoicing during difficult times. We're always going to be skeptical of that. That's why sometimes when you see someone that's content, even from across the parking lot, kind of makes you mad. It's like, what's up with that? It's because there's something there that you don't have that's appealing. And I think oftentimes, and even just diagnosing my own heart, it has to do with this low view that I can have sometimes of my own salvation. I don't see it as spectacular as it truly is. So a content person is not necessarily someone who walks around with a smile on his or her face, but a person who constantly talks about his or her amazement with God's grace as expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's someone that talks about just being amazed. And here's an example of this kind of rejoicing that Paul is talking about. Later in this service, we're going to sing... Uh, this hymn called It Is Well With My Soul, and um, is written by a man named Horatio Spafford. And he actually picked this song, which is perfect. I heard about it, and I was like, okay, easy illustration on a platter. I have to use this, and you'll see why later. Um, I was like, yeah, this works perfectly. One of the verses in the song that we're going to sing is, 
My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This is the kind of rejoicing we're talking about. It's centered on the cross of Jesus Christ, and yet he can still praise God, and yet he can still delight in God, no matter what circumstances he finds himself in. There's a lot more to this story about Horatio Spafford. You may know this story. I'm going to actually leave you hanging for a minute and come back to it. We're going to pick this story up about Horatio Spafford. But that's, the kind of, that's an example of the kind of rejoicing we're talking about. So content people, are re, they rejoice. And then we also see in verses 14 through 18 that content people are thankful people. Content people are thankful people. Paul, who is in prison, thanks the Philippians for providing resources for his ministry. And he's writing this letter, as we talked about, in part to thank them, thank the Philippians for their support. And that's amazing, too, that he would take the time and energy to write a letter that, that thanks them for the support. You might expect to write a Paul, Paul to write a letter with a bunch of complaints, or gripes. Maybe he would disguise them sort of as prayer requests, but they're more kind of complaining than anything. But the reality is, is he chooses to write a letter with a spirit of thanksgiving. Truly content people are thankful people. And Paul is a sinner. I'm sure he had complaints. I'm sure he had some gripes. But content people express thanksgiving. So here's a diagnostic test for you, okay? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I want to know, am I a content person? Am I a content person? Ask yourself this. Do you rejoice in God's grace? And are you thankful? Do you rejoice in God's grace? And are you thankful? Or do you tend to complain is there, you know, griping? You might need to ask others around you this question, by the way. It's often difficult to diagnose this kind of heart attitude. Ask yourself these questions and chew on that for a little bit. So that's our first observation. Our first observation is the attitude of a content person or what being content looks like when it's played out. Second observation we want to make this morning is that consistent contentment is possible. Consistent contentment is actually possible. Some of you may not think it's possible to be content on a consistent basis, and it might be really for a couple of reasons. One is you might just sort of be a complainer. You know, that's possible, and that's just sort of your disposition. Maybe you're very cynical. But the other reason, and I, I want to be really direct about this, it might be because you've suffered a lot and that you've gone through circumstances that most of us in this room cannot even imagine. So when we talk about the possibility of contentment, keep in mind, this is not a scold to you to say, how dare you be a complainer? This is an encouragement. This is a source of hope. So what does Philippians 4 have to say about this? Is, is consistent contentment in whatever circumstance, is it possible? Well, looks like the answer is yes. 
How do we know this? Because Paul claims that he is, in fact, content. And you know what else he claims? He says, I am content in whatever situation. And he also says that he's content in every circumstance. If you're thinking, well, what does Paul know about the world? Maybe he hasn't really seen it all, and, you know, who cares? Well, consider Paul's circumstances. He, he lays them out very nicely for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Let me just read those circumstances for you to help, get a, help you get a better understanding of what Paul's been through. Here are the circumstances. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. <clears throat> this is Paul speaking here. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, day, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul is not kidding around when he says in Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low. Paul knows how to be brought low, but he's saying, and the Bible is saying, it's possible to be content, and it's possible to be content all of the time. Now, compare Paul's claims, and therefore the claims of the Bible, compare the Bible's claims to uh, the claims of Leo Babauta, and I'm not positive about that last name, um, Leo Babauta. It's a blog, he's a blogger for this website called zenhabits.net. Zenhabits.net, a website that claims to be one of the top 25 blogs in the world. So maybe some of you have seen this blog, and it claims to have about 250,000 followers. In an article called The Incredible Power of Contentment, Leo essentially argues that that self-actualization is the way to be content. Self-actualization is the way to be content. In other words, if you want to be content, uh, and by the way, he basically associates uh, contentment with this sort of superficial happiness, uh, a connection that Paul would not make. Paul would not define contentment that way, we've just discussed. Um, But Leo says, if you want to be content, do it yourself, basically. You got you to just choose to be content, and uh, you have to have the right perspective. And this kind of contentment, though, it has its limitations. I'm going to read you a segment of this article, because I, I want you to understand what the world offers as far as contentment. Check out the quote from this article. This is Leo uh, writing here. He says, We choose whether we are happy or unhappy. We choose whether we are unhappy, whether we are happy or unhappy. Read that sentence again if it's not already something you consciously practice in your daily life. If you're unhappy with your life right now, I will venture to guess that it's because we've chosen to be unhappy. That sounds harsh, but in my experience, it's completely true. That's it. You just kind of got to choose it. He got some reader feedback, some people that were suffering. They were going through hard things that said, are you serious? I can't just choose this. And so he responded to that, and and here we go. He says, this is an edit based on reader comments. 
If you know blogs, you know those were probably a bunch of fun. I cannot speak to whether this concept of happiness, contentment, applies to everyone, especially clinically depressed, or those with similar disorders, people who are starving or homeless, people who have undergone massive tragedies or abuse, or others in such circumstances. However, for most readers, I believe the principles will apply. I hope that sounds extremely dissatisfying to you. It's basically saying, if you're in a pretty good state in life, you might be able to be content. Otherwise, I don't know. So it's a wonder, really, that there's this constant, ongoing search for contentment that you see in this world. So do you want this, this inconsistent, this, this non-trustworthy, worldly contentment based on having the right perspective? Or do you want consistent, authentic, godly contentment based on gospel truth? Contentment is possible in Christ. The Bible says that everyone, everyone in this room, every single person in this room can learn to be content in Christ. You don't have to go anywhere else to find it. In fact, you can't go anywhere else to find this kind of contentment. So this kind of contentment is possible, but we need to remember that it has to be learned. You have to learn this kind of contentment. And Paul makes this clear. He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So why must this kind of contentment be learned? Why do you have to learn this kind of contentment? You've got to learn it because there's a secret to it. Paul says there's a secret to this kind of contentment. He says in verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So when, when you read something like that in Scripture, I hope you stop everything and you ask, what is that secret? It's like shopping in the mall and you're just kind of cruising along. Hopefully you don't just cruise along in your Bible, but work with me here. And you're just cruising along. And all of a sudden you pass this store that says, you know, everlasting, contentment, uh, free, inquire within. You wouldn't cruise past that store. We need to know what the secret is. So what is the secret that Paul is talking about? What's the secret? Well, we actually get plenty of help in the context of Philippians 4 and elsewhere in Paul's letters. And we'll talk about this in more detail later. But it's, uh, basically, the secret that Paul has to being contentment is, is relying on God. It's relying on God, or to put it another way, trusting in God and the truth he has revealed in the gospel. Trusting in God and the truth that has been revealed in the gospel. And here's the thing. This is why learning is so important. We rely on God to the extent that we know God. We rely on God to the extent that we know God. This is why Paul says the contentment I'm talking about has to be learned. Because if the secret to this contentment is reliance and trust in God, but you rely on God to the extent that you know Him, then knowing God becomes a really important pursuit. 
a really important pursuit. This is why Paul, as he says in a chapter earlier in Philippians 3, he says this, he says, he counts everything as lost, everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And, and then he also says that he suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul knows that in order to be content, he's got to rely on God. In order to rely on God, he's got to know something about God. So what has Paul learned? What has Paul learned that causes him to rely on God in such a way that he is content in the gospel? What has he learned? Well, he learned a lot of things. We can't talk about all of them here, but we can talk about at least a couple of them that are found right in this text. Paul has turned, uh, he has learned that the Lord is his strengthener. The Lord is his strengthener. And Paul says as much in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Lord is his strengthener. And we also see that the Lord is his supplier. This is why Paul says in verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So those are some clues about why Paul is able to rely on God. Because he knows that God is his strengthener. He knows that God is his supplier. And so how did Paul learn these things about God? How did he learn this kind of thing? Well, let me take you through a bit of a cycle here. We know that in part his knowledge comes from just opening his eyes and observing the world around him. Paul himself wrote in one of his other letters to the churches that God's divinity is revealed in the things around us, in the things in nature. So part of the learning process is just saying, open your eyes and observe God's splendor. And we also know that, in addition to that, Paul searched the Scriptures. We know from his writing that he knew the Scriptures extremely well. And we know from his relationship with Timothy, for example, basically one of his uh, top disciples, essentially, that handling the Word of God was very important to Paul. He exhorted Timothy to that end. So we know that Paul did that. We also know that he... Paul stepped out in obedient faith according to what he had learned. So we have, this lear- we have this observation from the world around us and then from Scripture, and then we have this stepping out in obedient faith in accordance to what has been learned. And then ultimately we're strengthened in our faith when we obey God and act in accordance with what he has called us to do. We're strengthened in our faith. And when we're strengthened in our faith, we delight in God. And guess what? That delight in God, it leads us to want to know more about him, to make additional observations. Say, hey, man, this is great. I want to know more. And it's a cycle. You see that? We make these observations. We search the scriptures We're strengthened in our faith as we act in accordance to what we've learned. We delight in God and we grow in in our hunger to learn more about him and the cycle continues. But remember, we see here 
consistent contentment, it's only possible in Christ. It's only possible in Christ. And what a joy that is to know that no matter what you're dealing with right now, there was a, a woman at the church we're going to um, right now in Gainesville, Florida, for, for a kind of interim period, that just a few weeks ago was diagnosed as having um, breast cancer. She had been working for the church for 30 years. And just, I think, three days ago now, she had surgery, and she's doing well. But before she had that surgery, people were asking her, how are you doing? She said, I don't care about the cancer. <clears throat> I don't care about the cancer. The Lord, the Lord is God of my body. You can have that kind of contentment, and you can continue to rejoice only in Christ, only in the gospel. So that's our second observation. The first one was we talked about the attitude, uh, just what a content person looks like. The second observation was the possibility of even being content. The third observation we're going to make this morning is about the result of contentment. The result of contentment. So what happens when you're content? What happens when you're content? Paul tells us this very clearly in Philippians 4.13, a very well-known verse that unfortunately is also very commonly taken out of context. So we need to understand what this verse is really getting at. In verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying whatever God asks me to do, I can do those things because I'm trusting in God and he'll strengthen me as I obey him. You get that? Whatever God asks me to do, I can do those things. Whatever he calls me to do, I can do that because he strengthens me. He's also saying in whatever circumstances I find myself in, good or bad, God will sustain me. So this is where, as we talked about earlier, the godly contentment leads to the godly living. The godly contentment leads to the godly living. Paul is not saying, I, I can do anything I want to do as long as it's not morally wrong and God will bless that effort. Philippians 4.13 is used sometimes to say, hey, just do whatever you want to do as long as it's not egregiously bad and God will bless it. Paul knows that God is in control of Paul's life. And he's in control of our lives We don't direct our own paths. Paul was not directing his own path. I mean, good grief, this guy was blinded, and the Lord came down to him and said, Wake up. Paul clearly knows he's not doing his own thing. He writes about that all the time in his letters as well. He knows he's not in charge of his own life. So you've got to understand Philippians 4, 13 in context with the verses around it in chapter 4 and then really with the rest of Scripture. And not only what Paul writes, but other authors of the New Testament, even the Old Testament, write. Content people act when God calls them to act. And they can live with God-glorifying attitudes and whatever circumstances they find themselves in because they are contently relying on the Lord. So in a sense then, Philippians 4.13, you know what it is? It's an expression of Paul's rejoicing And you know what? Philippians 4.13 can be an expression of our rejoicing in God as well. Rejoicing in Jesus Christ. 
Godly contentment leads to godly living. And by living, we mean faithful obedience to God and his calling in our lives and perseverance in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Godly contentment leads to godly living. The thing, Paul does not promise. Paul does not promise that contentment, the road to contentment will be an easy one or that the life of a content person is pain-free and easy, okay? There's no promise about that at all. We can be sure that content people will definitely, absolutely still experience pain and suffering. It's no, there's no doubt at all about that. I want to direct your attention to something. Um, earlier this morning, we talked about this, this song we're going to sing in just a couple minutes here. Um, it is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford. Many of you uh, may be aware of this already, but that, that verse that we talked about was reportedly written, that example of rejoicing was reportedly written when Horatio Spafford was on a boat that was sailing over the very spot where his kids had just recently drowned. So we see that this example of rejoicing from Horatio Spafford, this very example of rejoicing was from a guy that in some ways had experienced serious suffering. You just can't rejoice like Spafford or like Paul. You can't rejoice like that unless you deeply treasure Jesus Christ. You can't rejoice like that unless you treasure Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, have you learned the secret of contentment? Have you learned the secret of contentment? Do you know Jesus so deeply that you can trust in him in whatever circumstances you find yourself in? You know, we talked about abiding worship last week and in doing radical things for Christ. I brought that up. Abiding worship is only possible. You can't be, the only way you can be an abiding worshiper is if you're a content person. That's how you can be an abiding worshiper. And you want to do radical things for Jesus? You want to do huge things for Jesus? Content people do radical things for Jesus. They do huge things for Jesus. You know, David Platt, I mentioned who wrote this book, Radical... He's, he pastors in a relatively well-to-do suburb of Birmingham, Alabama. And he's, he's encouraging people in that church to basically give up everything, to alter their entire lifestyle in order to serve the poor and further the work of the gospel. That won't happen in his church, and he knows this. That won't happen there. It won't happen anywhere unless you're content in the Lord, because otherwise that stuff that you're being asked to give up in order to do these radical things, they're going to they're gonna seem insurmountable. They're going to be too valuable to you. And if those things are valuable and you're not content in Jesus, you're just going to search for contentment in other places and it'll totally derail you from walking in step with Jesus and doing these kinds of huge things and being an abiding worshiper. And not only that, you will use and abuse other people in the process, by the way. If you don't know Jesus, 
If you don't know Jesus, I'm telling you right now that you need him. Everybody, everybody needs Jesus. Jesus isn't this, this option. If you want to be content, and it sounds good, go to Jesus. He'll give you that. Nope. Everyone needs Jesus because each and every one of us is a sinner in need of God's grace. But here's the cool thing. With Jesus, not only do you have this forgiveness of your sins because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, you get that. But the cool thing is, you also have this contentment. So it's not just wiping the slate clean and saying, well, it's kind of neutral now. You get this this all-consuming, satisfying contentment in Jesus Christ. That is a gift for people that are in him. We get a relationship with God that leads to authentic contentment. And I really, really hope and pray that if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you would surrender your life to him even today. Talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to your neighbor. If your neighbor doesn't know, you two of you can go together and talk to someone else. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that each and every one of us would feel completely and utterly devoid of meaning in our lives apart from you. I pray that without you, that we would feel empty and that that emptiness would lead us to desire nothing more than contentment in Jesus Christ. And we praise you that that's a promise, that you can be content. It's possible because of the gospel. We praise you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.